around the second century AD, there was a Buddhist monk called Nagarjuna. And he wrote a very influential early Buddhist text called the Fundamental Verses of the Middle Way. And in that text, we find this verse. The Dharma taught by the Buddhas relies on two truths, ambiguous truths of the world and truths of sublime meaning. Those who do not understand the difference between these two truths cannot understand the profound reality of the Buddha's teaching. So is that perfectly clear? <laughs> if so, we can all leave. <laughs> so you're about to um, get your second Dharma talk in a row that comes with a disclaimer. You know, so just to, to emphasize that it's not necessary to really absorb everything from any of these Dharma talks that we give. Um, especially in retreat, um, they're really just to energize you, to inform as much as possible, to motivate you and inspire you to keep going in this process. You know, so if you can take just one or two little snippets away from any given talk that kind of relate to what's going on in your practice, that give you some inspiration, some direction, then that, that's plenty. And the rest of it, you know, we just really talk about the same things over and over again anyway. <laughs> so if you don't get it now, you know, come back and you'll have more opportunities. <laughs> so having said that, <laughs> So in this verse of Nagarjuna's, there's this idea of two truths, two levels of reality, what Nagarjuna calls the ambiguous truths of the world and the truths of sublime meaning. And it's an idea that's really fundamental to what we're doing here, although it can sound quite cryptic. These levels of reality are often referred to as relative truth and absolute truth. And it's an idea that's found in some form uh, as far as I know, in every school of Buddhism, every different lineage and tradition, which is saying a lot because you know there, there are a lot of variations, as you might know, between the different traditions, the different schools, but there's certain common themes that are there with all of them. You know, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, and also this idea of the two truths, two levels of reality. So it's very much a defining idea of Buddhist thought. The idea that as human beings, we're multidimensional. Our lives play out on different levels. And one way of looking at what we're doing here is that we're learning to recognize those different levels and to connect with them, to tune into them in our own experience. So not just as a philosophical exercise. This isn't something that's meant to be gotten on the intellectual level, but for us really to investigate and to connect with in a tangible way, in a practical way. So I'll start by talking a little bit about how we normally th see things, what Nagarjuna called the ambiguous truths of the world. And this mode of seeing is what's called panyati, panyati in the Pali terminology. And this is another one you know, of those Pali terms that's difficult to translate. And different people use different English terms for it that capture different aspects of its meaning. So it may be called relative reality in the sense that everything within it is kind of exists relative to everything else. Sometimes it's called conventional reality in the sense that it's kind of our ordinary or everyday reality, the world that we usually move within. Sometimes it's called consensual reality 
in the sense that it's the reality that we all kind of agree to agree on. That's where we find common ground. So these are all names for this one level of reality that point to different facets of it, different aspects. And all of those senses are contained in the Pali term panyati. The term that I find most helpful to use is conceptual reality because that points directly to what this level of seeing is made up of. It's made up of concepts. It's conceptual. It's what we might call our conceptual model of the world. So it includes all of our ideas about what things are and what they do and how they're related. And really we construct the whole of this level of reality, what we're used to thinking of as our life, as the world, out of ideas, out of concepts. So for example, just sitting here right now, there's all sorts of concepts that are operative for each one of us. We all have our own conceptual framework for what's going on here. You know, we know who we are, you know, we know who you are. It may not be so precise, but you know, we know who you guys are. Um, we know that there's this talk going on, somebody's speaking, somebody's listening. We're here at IMS in Massachusetts in the United States of America, 2012, August, you know, and on and on and on. This whole framework for what's happening here. It's really vast. If we started to actually list out all of the concepts that are operating just right now, right in this moment, it would be huge. And that vast array of concepts is active in our minds all the time. It's really boggling to think about whenever we're tuned into this conceptual level of reality. So this whole conceptual framework that we operate within is what Nagarjuna called the ambiguous truths of the world, which is why it's sometimes called relative reality. And we come up against this all the time as we move through, through life. The concepts are fluid, that they're relative. How they form and change depends on all sorts of circumstances, all sorts of conditions, all sorts of factors. So since we each have a unique mind and history, we all end up with our own unique personal conceptual framework. And for the most part, there's enough overlap that we can work together well enough to get by, at least kind of right in our immediate communities. But we see all the time how we run into problems due to the diversity of conceptual frameworks. You know, different people have different ideas and opinions, and they tend to feel very passionately about them. Different groups and communities, different nations have different ideas and opinions, and they tend to feel very passionately about them. <laughs> Even if we have a very similar view or opinion with someone else, it's never exactly the same. You know, not in every tiny little detail. There's always going to be some variation, some diversity. That's why if you take a group of people who are all having the same experience, the same basic experience, each one will have different ideas about what's happening or what has happened. Different thoughts, different interpretations, different reactions. So again, just sitting in the hall right now, you know, we're all sharing the same basic experience, you know, more or less. We're all kind of uh, perceiving the same environment. We're all hearing more or less the same sounds. But for each of us, there's really our own unique experience going on. You know, to start with, we each have a different idea of who is experiencing this. You know, it's me for each of us, but that's a different person for each of us. 
And then we all have different ideas and opinions about each other, you know, who the others are in this room. And ideas about the hall, ideas about the speaker, ideas about the talk. Uh, judgments about who's young, who's old, who's attractive, who's not, who's nice, who's not, who has what virtues or vices. As Nagarjuna says, it's all ambiguous, it's all relative, it's all subjective. What's true on this level basically depends on who you ask. And we see that even our own ideas and opinions change over time. You know, we pick up new ideas, we discard old ones. Some ideas remain very steady, very fixed throughout our lives. Others change very rapidly or can change very rapidly. So even our own personal conceptual framework is not a given. It's also fluid. It's also ambiguous. It's also given to quite a lot of change and debate. These kinds of discrepancies are very obvious in the world around us, as they always have been. You know, conflicts about who has the right view of things. Is it the Germans or the Greeks? You know, is it the Israelis or the Palestinians? Is it the Democrats or the Republicans? You know, each of these groups, actually each individual within these groups, feels like they have the right view, the correct understanding of the situation or the conflict. But the fact is, you know, on a dharmic level, that really no one has the right view not the one right view, not in any kind of absolute sense, because these are all just conceptual truths, ambiguous truths of the world. They're inherently subjective, inherently diverse, and it becomes potentially very harmful on both the personal and the societal level when we believe that they're otherwise. The classic metaphor for this level of conceptual reality is that it's said to be like a mirage or a rainbow. You know, conditions come together, a certain kind of light, moisture, heat, sand, a particular viewing angle, and so on, and a rainbow appears, or a mirage appears. And when those conditions change, then it also changes or disappears. And it's the same with all of the conceptual world's various views and opinions, all those ambiguous truths. This is from the Samadhi Raja Sutra, which is another a very influential early text. Know all things to be like this, a mirage, a shape in the clouds, a dream, an apparition, without essence, but with qualities that can be seen. Know all things to be like this, as the moon in a bright sky, reflected in some clear lake, though to that lake the moon has never moved. Know all things to be like this, as an echo that reverberates from music, sounds, or weeping, yet in that echo is no melody. Know all things to be like this, as a magician conjures illusions of horses, cows, carts, and other things. Nothing is as it appears. It's said that at one time, the Buddha visited a place in northern India that was inhabited by a group of people called the Kalama, the Kalamas. And when the Buddha arrived in their capital, the people who saw him were very inspired by the nobility and the serenity of his countenance. 
but they were also skeptical, which was a good thing. It was very reasonable. In some ways, the Buddha's time was a lot like our own today. There were a lot of changes going on in the traditional social structures, in the political organization of the region. Um, In many ways, it was a time of unrest and uneasiness, uncertainty about what direction the world was moving in. But it was also a time of growing prosperity. There was progress in agriculture and in the technology of the time. So the quality of life was increasing for a lot of people. And in the midst of all this change and flux, people were really questioning deeply, you know, what was this life about? What was the point of it? And it's said that the Kalamas were relatively prosperous. Um, It's thought that they lived in an area around modern-day New Delhi, which is a relatively uh, benign uh, climate. They were blessed with good weather and uh, a lot of natural resources. They had an active uh, commerce with other states around them. So kind of as a result of their prosperity, there was no shortage of spiritual teachers that visited them and uh, went looking for converts and followers. So as the Buddha walked through their town, some of the people that saw him approached him. And they said to him very frankly, they said, sir, we have had many spiritual teachers visit our town. And each one has been able to propound his teaching in an excellent, very believable way. Equally, though, every one of these teachers has denied and negated every other teacher. Now we are totally confused. We do not know whom to believe. Does that also sound a little familiar? (laughs) We have this smorgasbord of spiritual offerings available to us as modern Westerners, and how do we know where to place our faith? How do we know who to believe? And the Buddha's response was very interesting. You know, he didn't just say, well, of course you should believe me, and here's why. He didn't go down that route. He didn't take that path. Instead, he pointed to the inherently unreliable nature or ambiguous nature of ideas and concepts. So this is what he said. He said, never believe any spiritual teaching because it is repeatedly recited or because it's written down in scriptures or because it's been handed down from teacher to disciple over many ages, or because everybody around you believes it, or because it has metaphysical qualities, or because it agrees with what you believe anyway, or because you can rationalize it. Don't believe it because it's a viewpoint that you need to defend, and don't believe it because the teacher is a reputable person, or because the teacher says it is so. So the Buddha is saying very explicitly that we shouldn't rely on conceptual truths, those ambiguous truths, for our understanding of reality. And this is a very famous um, passage from the suttas. There's a lot in it. It's very meaty. So it's quoted a lot. And it's most often quoted um, and explained as an encouragement from the Buddha to really see for ourselves what's true and what isn't, what's useful and what isn't, what leads to less suffering and what doesn't. And there is that message in it. You know, that's part of it. But actually, the Buddha goes even further than that in this teaching. So he's saying that we shouldn't rely even on our own ideas and views, that we shouldn't trust our own version of conceptual reality, 
any more than we trust anyone else's. So if you look at this list of what not to trust that he gave here, about half of it talks about not just swallowing someone else's version of conceptual reality. You know, the things that we hear from other people, hearsay, or things that we read in books, ideas handed down by tradition, things that are kind of the popular belief around us, or things that are put out there by a convincing authority figure. But the other half of, half of this list of unreliable sources of, of truth has to do with our own ideas, our own views, to the conceptual reality that we create in our own minds, our own reasoning, our own conjecture, our own analysis and imagination, the ideas and views that we arrive at because they seem reasonable, they seem logical, or they seem probable, or they're convenient, or they're appealing in some way. So this is a really radical proposition that the Buddha was putting out there, that we need to look somewhere else entirely, somewhere else altogether, other than conceptual reality, in order to gain a genuine understanding, a reliable understanding. <clears throat> There's a, a large, uh, lengthy meditation manual very comprehensive, that was written by Mahasi Sayadaw, that we keep referring to, kind of the founder of this lineage, um, that he wrote kind of in the, the thick of the time around World War II, um, when Burma was really um, suffering a great deal, really being torn apart by the, the different forces uh, at war within their territory. Um, it's said that he actually wrote this book. He was at a secluded uh, town in a monastery uh, kind of sheltering and, and writing in this book as he was there, and he could look out across the river to Mandalay, the, the main town of the time in uh, colonial Burma, and see the, the fires burning and hear the bombs exploding as they were dropped on the town. And in the midst of that, he wrote this amazing uh, comprehensive meditation guide, uh, which Steve <laughs> has been working on uh, getting translated and published for many years, along with a kind of a large cast of supporters, and we think it may finally be coming, <laughs> and which I had the honor to, to contribute to a little bit. Um, and there's a chapter in it on just this topic that I'm talking about tonight, the topic of relative and absolute reality, which was really the, the inspiration for me putting this talk together initially. And there's a whole section in it where the Sayadaw kind of expands out in kind of excruciating detail um, all of these unreliable sources of knowledge that the Buddha included in this, this little pithy teaching that he gave to the Kalamas. But then after his kind of initial exposition of them, then after that he just refers to them as hearsay, etc. <laughs> Which I find this really, you know, cute little shorthand for it's like, you know, hearsay and every other possible form of unreliable secondhand knowledge that we could possibly encounter, you know, just hearsay, etc. Um, and it really made me reflect for the first time, you know, just how much of our worldview really does come from these kinds of sources, from this conceptual knowledge. So much of our understanding about ourselves and the world is really secondhand in some way. It's mind-boggling to think just about our childhoods, you know, and everything that's imposed on us during that, for, for better or for worse all of the ideas about ourselves and about life and about the world that we absorbed when we were so receptive from our caregivers, from our peers, from our communities, from the media, you know, for goodness sake. And we can really see here in retreat, right, just how entrenched those ideas are. 
You know, we may have been told that we were smart or that we weren't, that we were attractive or not, that we were fun and entertaining or not, um, that we were good or that we were bad, basically, in some form or another. And yet, if we reflect a bit, we can see that these are really just other people's opinions. This is secondhand knowledge. They come from other people's own relative subjective view of us based on all of their conditioning, all of their history, all of their baggage, their worldview. But if we don't recognize this, then we can hang on to those ideas and continue to believe in them, to relate to them as if they were really true in some kind of absolute, objective way. And it becomes so clear as we look how harmful this can be, how limiting, how painful, how much suffering it can cause. I can see among my own friends, among the people that I know, just to pick a couple of of very glaring examples, I have one very dear friend who early on in his life was labeled as learning disabled. You know, this was a popular label. I'm not sure how common it still is, but back, you know, at the time when we were children. Um, Because he had certain difficulties in performing according to the expectations of the time proving himself within that particular educational system, you know, the way that it was structured at that time, performing in ways that were expected to qualify as successful in an academic setting. And he really internalized that label of being disabled, of being deficient in some way, and not having what it takes to succeed. So now, you know, even as an adult, despite having really tremendous talents, tremendous resources, Um, a lot of creativity and really wonderful personal qualities. He goes through life expecting to fail, feeling that he's not as good as everyone else and really not even trying, not even attempting because he has this inner image of himself as disabled. And that's a very common scenario, you know. There's really no objective reality to that view that he's deficient but he's internalized it so deeply that it's still a real fetter, a real impediment in his life. On the other hand, and kind of at the other end of the spectrum, I have another friend who early on in her life was labeled as gifted, which is another label they liked to hand out. And, you know, the work that was demanded of her by the educational system came really easily. You know, she just happened to be really good at standardized tests, you know, the multiple choice questions. Some of us have a knack for that, you know. And so she just sailed through her youth getting top marks and lots of praise and came out of it with a very high opinion of her own abilities, of her own qualities, of her own worth, really, based on that. That she really was gifted, that she really was better than others in some objective kind of way. And so now as an adult, she's continually surprised and disappointed when things don't go quite so easily for her as those multiple choice tests, you know? When her career, her relationships don't go quite the way she'd like. When people don't just automatically recognize, you know, her her inherent superiority, her giftedness. (laughs) And that too, you know, in its own way is a source of suffering, a source of limitation and disconnection with life. And we could all come up with examples like this either about ourselves or about people we know, um, who are limited by early messages that they hang on to. And we can see here just how that kind of thing plays out in our own hearts and minds. We absorb and trust all of the secondhand knowledge from very early on, and then it continues throughout our lives. 
Really, every single idea that we have about ourselves and about the world is acquired in one of these two ways from the, that the Buddha mentioned in his teaching to the Kalamas. We either adopt other people's ideas, taking on kind of externally imposed conceptual truth, or we reason things out for ourselves and we generate internally uh, imposed conceptual truth. And so much of our understanding is gained this way that we take it completely for granted. So just an example, you know, how do we know our gender? This is a really interesting one to think about it. How long have we known it? You know, can we remember the point at which we realized, oh, I'm a girl or I'm a boy or whatever option it might be? Who were the people or what were the experiences that convinced us of that? What if no one had ever told us that we were a girl or a boy? You know, how would we know it? Is there any way we would know it? When we look into our experience in our meditation, is there anything in it that we can identify as male or female? Is there, any, is there a male breath? You know? Is there a female knee pain? You know, is there anything within the range of experience that has that label that comes with it, that pops out and says, this is a feminine experience, this is a masculine experience? Um, there's absolutely nothing if we look. And the same thing goes for all of the ideas that we have about ourselves. Uh, our nationality, you know, is there, there, is there an American kind of itchiness? Is there an Italian kind of sleepiness? Is there a French breath? <laughs> you know, I don't know. <laughs> or age, you know, does our breath have an age? Does a thought have an age? You know, you could just go on and on. All of these kinds of things that we can't actually locate anywhere in our experience are just concepts, just ideas. They're things that we can only know and believe about ourselves through ideas and concepts, by thinking about them, coming to conclusions, making decisions about them. Things that we take completely for granted that are all just really gained through the unreliable source of views and opinions. Okay, so that's a little bit about relative reality, a little bit of a sense of what it means. What about this kind of more intimidating thing called absolute reality? Uh, what is that? And the Pali word for that is paramata, paramata. Another difficult one to translate, but I'm told that it means roughly true truth. It's like, a, like they really mean it, you know, it's really true. <laughs> this is the truth that's really true, paramata. But the English term for it that I like to use is empirical reality, because that kind of points, to, again, to how we experience it. The term empirical in science means that something can be directly observed or measured. It's something that instruments can pick up on and detect. So by saying that absolute reality is empirical, it means that that's what we can actually directly observe through our senses, through our instruments. These are the realities that we can know for sure and for ourselves without resorting to unreliable sources of conceptual knowledge. So these are things that we can be completely confident about because we've seen them, we've known them directly for ourselves. And this is actually a relatively limited set of things that fall into this category of absolute reality. They're the six senses that we keep mentioning. So there's our physical experience, everything that comes in through our nervous system and our sense organs, uh, 
all of the various sensations that we feel in our bodies, uh, internal or external contact with our nervous system, the sense of touch. And then there's seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling. And that's really all that ever happens in our physical experience on the absolute level. We sense with the body, we see, we hear, we taste, we smell. It's pretty straightforward. So that's where you usually start with our contact with absolute reality. That's kind of our easiest in to absolute reality. And then there's our mental experience, which includes everything that we can experience with our mind, what's sometimes called cognizing, which is very different from everything that we can know with our minds conceptually. This is where it tends to get a little sticky for a lot of us. The content or the meaning of our mental activity is the realm of conceptual reality, the story. But the absolute reality is just the direct experience of our mental processes, what it feels like to think, what it feels like to remember, what it feels like to fantasize, what the experience of our emotions actually is, rather than the stories that they tell. So there are these two ways of relating to our mental activity. The way of relative reality, where we pay attention to the content of our thoughts, the content of our ideas and concepts. And we see everything from within the narrative and the point of view of those concepts. You know, what we often call here getting drawn into the story of the thoughts. And then there's the absolute way of seeing our mental activity, the level of absolute reality where we're aware of the fact and the direct experience of thinking itself. We don't get drawn into the story. We don't buy into the narrative. Instead, we know what that mental activity actually feels like in the mind, its flavor, its texture. An analogy for this that I often give is, is that it's like the difference between being on a raft, kind of floating down the river with a lot of rapids, and being on the bank of the river and watching that raft go by. You know, the same thing is happening, but the point of view is different. The perspective is different. The vantage point is different. So when we're caught up in our thoughts, then we're really riding those rapids, you know. <laughs> we're carried wherever that river takes us, and we have to go with the flow. And we all know what this feels like, you know. We get on that raft and whoosh, we're off. And if we're carried over rocks or rapids, then, you know, we're stuck on that raft for the ride. And all we can really do is just hold on, you know, and hope for the best. But if we're sitting over on the bank of the river, observing our thoughts from that perspective of absolute reality, then we can just watch the raft float by, see what it does, see where it goes. And then the next one, and then the next one. We can rest in a place of stillness from that perspective, on firm ground, as all of the flots float by. So it's a place of refuge, a place of safety and security from the rapids and the rocks that we encounter in relative reality. And this level of absolute reality is fundamentally different from conceptual reality. It's really completely unrelated to concepts. Of course, we can and we do use concepts to describe it. Like in this talk, this talk is being delivered to you within conceptual reality, within relative reality. And that's where you're receiving it. That's our, our consensual reality. This is where we can connect and exchange ideas. Or in the meditation instructions, you know, those happen within relative reality. 
or when we're just sitting and we're reminding ourselves internally in our own mind of what the instructions are, what we ought to be doing, giving ourselves the pep talk. Or using the noting technique, that's also when a bringing in of relative reality, using conceptual reality. So we use words and concepts to point our awareness towards absolute reality. But the actual experience of it is non-conceptual or pre-conceptual. It's just that direct knowing of what is without the interpreting of it. A good example of this is trying to describe in words the flavor of a food or the taste of something, which is really quite ineffable. Um, Dhamma Ruan, the, the young boy who uh, we heard chanting last night when he was two, um, was visiting here more recently as a grown man and had been spending some time in this area in the States. And he asked what might be a good thing to take home as a little gift, you know, a little uh, taste of America for his friends and family, something that was kind of distinctively of this area and this culture um, that he wouldn't find at home in Sri Lanka. So we thought for a little bit and we hit on maple syrup. You know, it's kind of the quintessential New England product, right? Some, and it was something that he had never tasted, so he didn't actually know what it was like or what it was really. You know, it's just something he hadn't encountered before. So we tried to explain it to him, you know, tried to explain maple syrup. Like, how do you explain maple syrup? You know, we were saying, well, it's kind of sweet and it's kind of sticky and you can put it on things, you know, it's kind of a condiment. And so he was saying, you know, is, is it like honey? You know, we were like, yes, but you know, it's different. <laughs> so we told him, you know, you just have to see for yourself. So we walked him down the road here to one of IMS's neighbors where they actually make maple syrup. They, they tap the trees and they, they brew the syrup. And we knocked on the, the door and the woman there answered and we told her what we wanted and um, she took us around back to the barn where they make the maple syrup and this really sweet old man, uh, her father was out there like literally at that moment he was like you know, fiddling with the knobs and like boiling the syrup and you know, it was just all percolating there. And you know, we asked could we, could we get a bunch of little bottles of it and they said yes we can do that. And um, we told him that Damaruan had never tasted maple syrup, that he didn't actually know what it was, um, which seemed incredible you know, to, to this family, you know, this New England family. I'm like, what? You've never tasted maple syrup? So you know, right there, the man you know, took, took the ladle and ladled out a little scoop for him to taste into a little, little plastic container of some kind. So he took it and he you know, lifted it and put it up to his mouth and could kind of see it going into his mouth and hitting his tongue and his whole face lit up. <laughs> He just glowed, and he's like, yes, that's what I'm taking back to my family. <laughs> and we all laughed, you know, because it was this moment of, you know, insight, enlightenment. You know, it's like, okay, now he knows. Now he knows the taste of maple syrup. And now we can talk about it. We can talk about it within the realm of concepts, and we have that common currency of all having had the direct experience. I also have a friend in D.C., back in Washington, who's a big shot uh, sommelier, you know, she's a wine specialist. She consults with um, really the top restaurants, like the places that the Obamas go for their date nights. You know, she puts together their wine list for them. And um, she's passed a few of these really difficult exams that are given by the French wine authorities. 
um, where they have these blind taste tests. You know, they just put out all these glasses of wine and you have to be able to identify like not just the type of grape, but like where it was grown and what year and what the weather conditions might have been and how it was the production techniques that were used and um, just from, you know, one little sip of wine. And there's only a very small elite group of people, you know, that ever pass these things. There's only, you know, a handful of people in this country that, that have passed these tests. So her ability to, to detect and describe these really subtle elements of taste and aroma in a wine is, is really just mind-boggling. She's got this incredibly sensitive palate, far beyond what most of us have. And sometimes we'll be at a gathering somewhere with her and other wine aficionados, and they'll be talking about wine and kind of tossing around all these terms that wine people use, you know, fruity and oaky and tannins and, you know, I don't know what because it's all meaningless to me because I don't drink wine. Um, you know, I haven't had the direct experience of the flavors or the wines that they're referring to. I don't know what those terms actually point to. You know, I can kind of guess, but I don't really know. Um, you know, I can't get her experience of the wine just from her description of it. It doesn't do me any good. And that's how all of absolute reality really is. You know, the direct experience of it is something else altogether from the description of it. We have to taste it for ourselves. So these examples of, you know, the flavor of a food or of a wine, those are fairly straightforward. You know, we can kind of get that intellectually. We can kind of grok it. <laughs> <laughs> But the same principle really applies to all of relative reality, all, I mean, all of absolute reality, you know. What does heat really feel like? Does it feel like that word heat? No, it has its own unique flavor, its own unique texture, its own unique experience, which we can only know by actually feeling it directly in the moment that it's happening. What does joy feel like? What does sorrow feel like? We have to actually feel them to really know. And those direct experiences, although related to the concepts about them, are something entirely different from the concepts. Yet most of us are so used to relating to our life through the medium of concepts that we often don't realize that we aren't really, really truly feeling some aspect of our experience, that we aren't really deeply taking it in. We can take it for granted that, you know, of course we know what we're feeling. You know, if you go out on the street and you ask anybody off the street, you know, do you know what you're feeling? They say, yes, of course I know what I'm feeling. Um, but in fact, we can take this for granted when it's not actually the case. And we be begin to get a sense of this in retreat. I came up against this early in my practice on my first long retreat here. Um, I got a bit into the retreat and my mind started going through a personal history review which is a very common phenomenon. Maybe some of you are enjoying that while, during your time here. <laughs> you know, and, and all, a lot of painful stuff was coming up with a lot of painful emotions. And I was trying to be diligent and note the emotions and, and try to put labels to them. But I could never quite seem to figure out what I was actually feeling, even in the midst of a lot of stuff coming up. I just didn't know what it was. I had a lot of ideas based on the content of the stories that went with them about what I ought to be feeling. You know, that this, this thought ought to bring up sadness or this other thought ought to, ought to bring up grief or whatever it was. You know, if I'd kind of been reading my story in a book or watching it on TV, like those are the emotions I would think the characters would have. That's what I would imagine they would have. 
But somehow I could never f quite feel confident about those labels. So I kept going to my interviews and complaining that I didn't know what I was feeling. I'm like, I'm feeling things, I don't know what it is. So at some point, I, I just gave up really. This is often a pivotal point in practice. <laughs> I just gave up and I just stopped trying to figure out what I was feeling. I got the instruction, you know, as we often give you guys, to, to notice what was clear and to not worry about what wasn't clear. And so I, I tried to my best to do that. And it was at that point when I started to be able to actually feel what I was feeling. You know, to make that shift to abs from, abs from relative reality to absolute reality, to empirical reality, so that I could actually connect with the sensations moving through my body, uh, the changing texture of the mind as the various thoughts and memories move through. And it was still mostly unpleasant stuff, you know, that part didn't change. But at the same time, there was the experience of being awake, of being actually living the reality of my emotional life for the first time, you know, in an, and in a way that I had and um, probably since I was a young child, in a way that had been hidden by all of the ideas and concepts about what I should be feeling or ought to be feeling or might be feeling. And at that point, you know, I didn't really care anymore whether I could figure it out. I didn't care anymore what the label might be or what the reason for those feelings might be. Because the reality of the experience in the present moment was far greater than that. It was far deeper. It was far truer. It was the true truth, the paramata. And also, you know, ironically, at that point, uh, I did begin to finally be able to put labels to my emotions, if I chose to, if I wanted to just in a very simple, straightforward, and easy way, because I was finally actually feeling the experience. So when we can connect with it, when we can feel it directly, then the labels come from that, not the other way around. It became clear which experiences would be appropriate to call sadness, or to call grief, or to call anger. But at the same time, I wasn't blinded by those labels anymore. I was able to see the absolute truth that was behind them. So one way of thinking about what we're doing here is that we're learning to make this shift in perception from relative reality to absolute reality, from our concepts and ideas about experience to connecting with our actual experience directly. And everything that we do here is really in the service of that. This is all designed for that purpose, this whole retreat thing. It's all set up so that we don't have to spend any more time than absolutely necessary in relative reality. I don't know if you noticed that. So we come to this secluded place here where we won't be bombarded by media. You know, there's not books all around us. There's no TV, there's no radio. Hopefully you've put your devices away. You know, we're free from all that imposition of concepts from the outside. And things are arranged so that we don't have to interact with each other very much. You know, so we can kind of drop all those ideas about relationships and what to do with people and do they like me or do they not like me, that whole level of concept. We only have to do a minimum of work so that we can let go of as many ideas as possible about, you know, doing and accomplishing and all that kind of thing. We don't read and write, hopefully. 
which are, you know, if we think about it by nature, those bring us into conceptual reality because that's their, that's their medium. So everything has been optimized so that we don't need to engage with concepts any more than absolutely necessary. And the instructions are all designed to keep pointing us back to absolute reality, back to that simple awareness of our actual experience. You know, can we feel a breath as if we were taking our very first breath without any preconceptions, no ideas, no expectations about it, as if it were our first taste of maple syrup, you know? Can we taste sleepiness as if it were a fine wine that we'd never tasted before? You know, discovering all the complex flavors and aromas that are there in it. You know, it's, it's really just that simple. But still things can seem complex at times. You know, there's so much going on in the body and all of our thoughts and emotions and feelings and intentions. There's so much that we could be aware of in any given moment. And as we settle into the retreat and we become more aware, then more reveals itself. And we begin to pick up on more and more. But it's just about being aware of something that's paramata, something that's true truth, something that's really true. Anything that's really true, actually. It doesn't matter. We keep giving out this message. Anything that's true in this moment will do for our purposes here, just so long as it's something that we can directly know right now. I've heard that um, Kamala's teacher, Munindra, used to say that if a yogi just sits and knows that they're sitting, nothing more than that, that the whole of the Dharma will be revealed. You know, it can just be that simple. Um, I think about that a lot. I take a great deal of refuge in it. (laughs) That's enough. If we can just sit and know that we're sitting, we're already so far ahead of the game. So if we follow the schedule the best that we can and follow the instructions as best we can and listen to our teachers as best we can, then inevitably we'll begin to connect more and more with absolute reality. There's actually really no way to avoid it here. If we're making our best effort to be aware of what's happening, then we will get more and more tuned into our direct experience. All of you are, are already so much more sensitive to this level of reality, to your direct experience now than when you arrived here just a relatively few days ago, even if it doesn't feel that way, I guarantee it. And that as best we can part in what I was just saying is really important. You know, it's important to realize that all we need to do is our best. Thank goodness. <laughs> we don't need to do any more than that. We don't need to push somewhere beyond our capacity, beyond our limits. We just need to do our best. We're trying to make a fundamental shift in perspective. And that's very difficult. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes practice. There's a very strongly conditioned tendency to relate to experience through concepts. You know, it's not something that we have to choose to do. That's the mode that comes easily for us. It's not something that we do choose to do most of the time. It's just a conditioned function of the mind. It's something that human minds do. So the process of trying to see things differently from this other perspective is usually messy, and it's usually frustrating, and that's just the nature of it. 
making that shift in the mind between the different modes of seeing things is a little bit like tuning an old radio with um, an, an actual analog knob. <laughs> you have to actually turn with your fingers. <laughs> you know, you have to adjust it very carefully to pick up on the station that you want. So in our minds, there's the conceptual station. You know, it's kind of like talk radio, incessant chatter, <laughs> call-in shows, obnoxious pundits, <clears throat> commercials, talk all the time. <clears throat> and then there's the absolute station, which plays all sorts of interesting music. And it's commercial-free, no talk. <laughs> kind of like uh, public radio. And we may or may not like the music, but it's always interesting. But then there's also a space in between those two channels where there's a lot of crosstalk. You know, that space on the dial where you're not quite tuned into one and you're not quite tuned into the other. And if you remember what that sounds like and the reaction it tends to produce in the body, you know, you get in that place where it's going, you know, little bits and pieces of everything. It's like, ah, get it on the station. And we can often have that same kind of feeling in our practice when we're in that kind of in-between place. <clears throat> you know, we haven't, quite tuned, we haven't quite left behind the conceptual realm yet, but we haven't quite found that absolute station yet either. <clears throat> And just as with that kind of radio, you know, we have to be very sensitive to the action of the dial and get a lot of experience adjusting it. You know, if we've got one of those and we kind of get a feel for it over time, we kind of know just how to turn it and where the stations will come in. So with time and patience, we can get familiar with the transition between these two levels of reality. And we can find that absolute level more easily when we want to listen to what's playing there. But even as we do this, it's important to remember that there's no inherent conflict between these two ways of seeing things. So coming back again to Nagarjuna's verse about the two truths. As human beings, our lives include both of these levels of reality. And they're both valid within their own spheres. So it's not any part of the Buddha's teaching that we need to reject conceptual reality, that it's somehow bad bad for us. We just simply need to see it in its proper light to understand its nature, to understand its role. The Buddha himself, after his enlightenment, you know, he didn't just keep sitting under the Bodhi tree experiencing absolute reality until he passed away from dehydration or starvation. <laughs> he hung around under the Bodhi tree for a while, you know, enjoying what he'd discovered, enjoying his peace, but then he moved on, you know, he ate again, he drank again, and he engaged very actively with the realm of concepts, really actively with all of his teaching um, for decades after that. But without being fooled by the conceptual world, that was the difference, that he wasn't fooled by it anymore the way that he had been. Mara, the lord of illusion, you know, that embodiment of all the, the uh, suffering that comes from buying into the truth of relative reality, Mara didn't bother him anymore, couldn't touch him anymore. It's like looking at something with the naked eye versus seeing it through a microscope. I can remember very vividly from junior high school, my science class, my uh, biology class that year, um, the first time that I saw organic material through a microscope. Um, it was a lovely experience. <laughs> It was in the time when uh, they'd stopped forcing junior high kids to dissect frogs, but they still felt like we had to dissect something. 
<clears throat> so we had these jars of kind of marinated earthworms. I don't know what they were marinated in, but it was really foul smelling. Um, and you can imagine to a classroom full of 12-year-olds, you know, ew, you know, it's incredibly gross. <laughs> so we had to take a cross-section of these things and prepare the slides and then look at it under the microscope. And I remember kind of the shock when I looked at these slides under the microscope. It was a completely different world, you know. It's just all these shapes and colors and things I hadn't seen before. And there's nothing really there to be gross anymore. It was, it was a different way of looking at it, a different perspective. <clears throat> So it wasn't that one of those views was right and one was wrong. You know, there's no one right way of seeing that worm. They're just two different points of view, two different levels of relating to the same thing. So seeing relative and absolute is kind of like that. You know, there's no inherent conflict between them. So it's not that as we learn to experience absolute reality more, start learn to, how to sink into it, that we start walking around saying things like, you know, this stream of mental and physical phenomena is going to the dining room, you know. Um, <laughs> don't fall into that trap. <laughs> you know, we still say, I'm going to have lunch, you know. I'm breathing, I'm walking, I'm eating, I'm meditating. But there's an understanding, even as we say those things, that there's a deeper truth behind them. There's another layer there. Or to put it maybe in more compelling terms, you know, when we say, I'm in love, or we say, I have cancer. There's an understanding of the level on which, yes, that's true. There's a reality to that. But there's also the understanding that there's a level of deeper truth behind that, a truer truth, paramata. And we can hold both of those truths at the same time. So I've talked for quite a while now about relative truth and absolute truth, what they are, how we shift between them. But there's a very fundamental question about this topic that I haven't talked about yet. And that is just very simply, why bother? You know, inevitably at some point, or maybe many points, maybe many points today, we all ask ourselves, you know, why are we doing this? What is the point of this? What am I doing here? You know, we all know and love conceptual reality. It's familiar, it's easy, it's where we live our lives and grow up and grow old. It's where we have relationships and careers and vacations and spiritual paths and all that sort of thing. And most people live out their entire lives on the level of conceptual reality without ever getting an inkling that there's this other level that's operating in the background. And yet we wouldn't be here if we didn't realize on some level, maybe not consciously, that conceptual reality has some serious flaws. They're the flaws that we call dukkha, which is kind of a whole topic in and of itself. But it's sometimes translated as suffering, often in English. Um, but it really encompasses so much more. <laughs> We can think of dukkha as all of the ways that relative reality doesn't deliver what we want, doesn't deliver what it promises. And relative reality makes many promises, you know, especially here in American culture. It promises us the moon, really, you know, that we can have it all, that we can have pleasure and happiness at every possible front, um, and that we can find a way to afford it all. <laughs> 
But how much of that does it really deliver? You know, we all know it doesn't deliver on those promises. The truth is that conceptual reality is actually exhausting. And this is especially obvious here on retreat. You know, has anybody not gotten this yet? The endless stories, the endless dramas, the endless memories, the endless fantasies, and on and on and on, and it just never shuts up. <laughs> has anybody missed this? <laughs> So it's not long before we're just sick of it. It's oppressive. It's dukkha. When we're paying attention, it's not long before we just want to say enough already. You know, this is what you all come into interviews saying, in one way or another, a lot of you, you know, that we're, you're stuck on that raft, riding the rapids of the stories, and it's unsatisfying. It's unpleasant. We want so much to be able to find some remedy some secret trick or some magic fix, you know, that will put a stop to the thoughts. But what we really want is not to stop thinking, but an escape from conceptual reality. So we're here because we've realized on some level that there has to be another way, and because we have faith on some level that there is another way. And this is the way, precisely through turning and tuning into absolute reality through awareness, through mindfulness. The Buddha said at the beginning of the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness, which is kind of the the source for the style of practice. He said, this is the only way for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destruction of suffering and grief, for reaching the right path, and for the attainment of peace, namely, mindfulness. So out of this faith, out of this intuition that there is another way to find happiness, we end up here. And as I said before, if we just do our best, then we'll start to connect with our actual experience in more moments. And compared with being caught up in the dramas of conceptual reality, when we finally hit this place, it feels great. Because connecting with absolute reality gives us a chance to rest, gives us a place to rest. And you've probably seen this in your experience, even if it's just for brief moments, those times when we can just relax into a breath. You know, it may just be a very short period of time, but we get a taste of the release, the ease that comes with that. Just to hear the sound of a bird, just to notice a thought coming and going. And mostly there's nothing special going on in these moments. They're very mundane, but they're real. They're the paramata, they're the real experience of our life. And so they're rich, there's a vitality in them. Even in the unpleasant experiences, when we can connect with with them in this way, we can feel the life that's in them, the truth that's in them. The more we cultivate the ability to rest in absolute reality, the more these moments can become a place of refuge, a place for rejuvenation. The more we can resort to them for a well-earned break from the hard work of being me, which is really a full-time job. And that's an invaluable benefit of this practice and a great asset in life. But that's not why the Buddha went to the trouble to teach this practice as long and hard as he did. So coming back to Nagarjuna's verse again, the Dharma taught by the Buddhas relies on two truths, ambiguous truths of the world and truths of sublime meaning, 
those who do not understand the difference between these two truths cannot understand the profound reality of the Buddha's teaching. So we practice tuning into absolute reality so that we can realize truths of sublime meaning and understand the profound reality of the Buddha's teaching. Or in other words, so that we can experience insight. We can come to see the deeper nature of both these levels of reality. Insight brings a depth of peace that goes beyond the momentary relief, beyond the temporary relief of just letting go of concepts and thoughts. Ultimately, it can bring us a lasting relief, the relief of deeply accepting how things truly are and living in harmony with that understanding. And we'll talk more about this as the retreat goes on, how insight unfolds. It can sound pretty lofty, but it's actually a very natural and lawful process. And it all unfolds spontaneously, very automatically. We don't have to make it happen. We can't actually make it happen. What we can do is connect over and over again with our actual experience in the present moment. And then the whole of the Dharma will reveal itself in time. I've heard that Sayada Upandita said something along the lines of, every moment of awareness brings the yogi one step closer to enlightenment, whether they like it or not. (laughs) So we don't have to believe it will happen because it's the Dharma, it's the truth, it's lawful, it's natural. There are two collections of poetry in the Pali Canon called the Terigata and the Teragata. And they contain the enlightenment stories of the earliest Buddhist practitioners, the very first people who practiced in this way and realized that deepest truth of freedom from suffering. And some of these poems are really fascinating just in, in how intimate and honest they are, their portrayal of spiritual life. We can really see how it was no different for those men and women practicing in that time 2,600 years ago walking the same path than it is for us today. And to close, I'd like to share one poem from a woman named Patachara. Patachara had suffered through a very traumatic adult life. She had lost her husband, her two young children, her parents, and her brother in a very short span of time through horrible tragedies, very awful occurrences, and was wandering just basically out of her mind with grief when she first encountered the Buddha. But she joined the order of nuns and she practiced diligently and went on to become a great teacher and a mentor to many other women, showing them the way. It seems that the depth of her own past suffering gave her a profound compassion for others, which helped to really inspire them. And her enlightenment poem really illustrates the immediacy of her connection with absolute reality, which then led to her liberation of mind. Bathing my feet, I watched the bathwater spill down the slope. I concentrated my mind, the way you train a good horse. Then I took a lamp and went into my room checked the bed and sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick down. Just as the lamp went out, 
my mind was freed. Her description is so timeless, isn't it? So accessible. And this could really be any of you here, you know, going off to bed tonight, mindfully, carefully, preparing for sleep. You know, we can almost picture Patachara there with her wash basin, mindful of the coolness of the water, the touch of it on her skin, all the movements of the washing, then lifting the basin and pouring out the water, seeing the glint and glimmer of the water moving across the ground. We can imagine her really settling into the present moment, each sensation of lifting her lamp, walking, preparing for sleep, sitting down on her bed, moving so carefully and mindfully as she picked up the pin, moved her hand, and pressed down the wick of the lamp. And in that very moment, connecting so deeply, just with that incredibly simple truth of her experience, that her mind broke through to the deepest knowing, the unconditioned nirvana, and was liberated from all illusions and the suffering that they bring. And it's just through this kind of very simple, very direct connection with what's happening, that the whole of the Buddha's teaching becomes clear to us. So let's sit for a moment. This is the only way for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destruction of suffering and grief, for reaching the right path, and for the attainment of peace, namely, mindfulness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.